You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is uh, Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Kelly Dorfman. She's an author and a nutritionist, and uh, her focus appears to be using nutrition therapeutically to improve brain function, energy, and mood, which are all uh, super important things. So, Kelly, thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. Nice to be here. Yeah. So, how did you get into this? Uh, how did you get into nutrition first, and then why this area specifically? Ah, excellent questions. Well. I was a psychology major, and I was told when I was a senior, I had to get ready for my PhD, and I was putting myself through school and didn't have enough money for that. So I was looking for something I could do that would be more practical, and uh, I went home. I was food shopping for my mother. My mother hated to food shop, and I ran into a book called Sugar Blues, which is an old book from the 80s about how sugar affects your health. And I thought, wow, here's something that's really, really um, practical that I could do. So I changed my major and into nutrition, but I, I always wanted to use it therapeutically. I was disappointed that it was such an ancillary uh, technique and strategy very often. I wanted to use it as a primary strategy, and that's always been my interest. And uh, because I've always taken on difficult cases, I ended up getting a lot of brain cases, a lot of kids with development problems, a lot of older people with memory problems. So I developed a lot of um, interest in mood and, and behavior and brain issues. Huh? That's, That's the good, short. because the easy cases are, uh, are easy. The hard ones are the most interesting. Yeah, and, and you know, and it just keeps you digging. And I have a family that's full of brain issues. My uh, father um, had a brain tumor. My mother had brain cancer. Uh, my stepfather had a, an an a brain aneurysm. So one of my aunts said, "Boy, there must be something in the water." But whatever it was, it did get me interested in brain stuff. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's you know the people that work in health. Are like superheroes because they all have their own origin story when they were down in the dumps and something happened and then they decided to overcome it and become a hero to their friends and family. So you fit right in. Well, yeah, except that I was lucky. It wasn't a personal thing so much that I was trying to fix my own terrible health. Um, but um, I didn't, I was not lucky. I didn't have terrible health. Although when I, I did change my diet, I felt better, but um, no, it was just, yes, the people around me. So, yep. I guess we all, what did they call that? The wounded, uh, the wounded healer or something. <laughs> so perhaps that's what yeah. it is. So I'm glad to talk to you because, you know, I, I speak to a lot of nutritionists and health people and they'll give 
advice on how to help this, that, or the other. And then I ask them about the hard cases. And they don't shy away from them, but they kind of say, well, you can't help everybody. I've heard some people say that. So tell me about some of the difficult cases and what, what lengths did, did you have to go to to help people? Well, I have many, many difficult cases. And sometimes the difficult cases are very straightforward if you look through the history long enough and you can find a thread. Like I um, had somebody sent to me recently that had hives all over her body. And that's a tough one uh, because the allergist couldn't figure out what the problem was. And she'd been tested a bunch of times and she was completely miserable. She was missing work. She was itching all the time. And I looked through all of her voluminous amounts of records because that's what you do when you're a detective and when you have a difficult case. And she had Hashimoto's disease. And one of the weird secondary issues with Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid um, autoimmune disease, is uh, chronic hives. So I said to her, I said, what are you doing about this Hashimoto's? And she said, what Hashimoto's? And um, yeah, she'd never had, doctor didn't notice it, never been treated for it. And so in, in that case, I just kicked her right back to her doctor. So that was very, very simple, very straightforward. And other times, if it's something like eosinophilic esophagitis, where there's a lot of uh, white cells in the throat or it's some kind of cognitive issue, you're looking at long-term management strategies. And they tend to work very well, but you have to have a fair amount of patience for things going wrong uh, and for tweaking. So I do, I guess. Where do you... Um... <laughs> what? So what helps you in your detective work? What, what do people, uh, what, can people do anything to help you, to help them or um, oh, what mostly. kind of records do they assemble? Yeah, well, mostly they do all the work, to be honest with you. And, and I just sit there and listen. Most of the time, I would say people tell me what the answer is and they just don't know they know the answer or they have no confidence in what the answer is. But I would say, gosh, maybe three quarters of the time, people pretty much have an idea and are not shocked. Now, this woman with the Hashimoto's was very shocked and, and upset. But that was a medical problem that had been missed. That's that's unusual. But but uh, other times people would say, oh yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought about that, but I mentioned it to you know ABC person, and and they said no, that couldn't be. So sometimes it's just building confidence and building a case around it, and also treating the person, not the test. I mean, a lot of times people come in with tests, and the tests look okay, but clinically they're not functioning well. And in that case, you always deal with the person, not the test results. So that, oh, that so helps. I've heard a lot about this. Someone's in range for something. The doctor says you're in range, but the person still feels bad. Right. Like I just saw a little kid and he's not growing properly and he is technically in range uh, for his thyroid, but he's, he's passing with a D minus. I mean, he really, he's barely, I mean, it's just, it's not robust. So the question is when you have a, a non-robust test result and you have a child who has a, a serious symptom and he really has not grown much at all in the last two years, uh, do you treat anyway? And uh, that's in medicine, it's always safer in terms of not being sued, not to treat. Uh, so so you, you run on this, this razor edge. The doctor said, yeah, he goes, I'm on the fence about it because of this growth problem. We probably should treat, but he's very reluctant to treat because he's not technically out of range. So. That's so what are the biggest modulators of uh, health and disease that you see in general? Well, uh, that's a really good question. I think that, uh, you know, nutrition therapy breaks down basically into two worlds. The first world is, are you eating something that's bothering you? So you're always screening to see if the person's symptoms 
are possibly symptoms of something that they're eating that's irritating them. And usually those are irritating like symptoms, like their stomach hurts, they get sick a lot, you know, they're always picking up this cold or that cold, uh, they have some kind of rash. Uh, so there's some kind of irritation uh, problem. And then sometimes the irritation is much more subtle. And then um, the other thing is, are you missing something that could help you? And that's the therapeutic nutrition intervention. And so you're bouncing back in between um, these two worlds. And most of the answers are in one of those two places. Now, a lot of people concentrate only on removing irritants, like taking out allergens and food reactives of uh, uh, foods. But that's not good enough. That's like taking the tax or the nails out of your driveway and expecting your tires to get better. I mean, tires aren't a live system, but it's one thing to remove irritants and that's important. But at the same time, you have to make sure you're doing enough healing uh, strategies to help to repair. And so we're looking at both of those kind of things. And you know, in most conditions, Richard, these days are walking wounded conditions. I mean, there are some very dangerous diseases out there that can knock people down and cancer and those type of things. But a lot of things that we're looking at are chronic autoimmune diseases, for example, have gone way up so that they're long-term management type things. Allergies, uh, just feeling generally fatigued or fuzzy headed. These are, are conditions that don't always have a disease that you can just throw a drug at right? Not, not a pill for every ill. I mean, what they, they are is their long-term complicated situations that need to be managed. And nutrition works very well in those situations. Whereas if you get run over by a truck, you want to go to your doctor because they're very, very good at that. What about, um, I'll give you an example. So uh, you know, my wife was taking metformin and I read on my own that it can deplete B12. So I sold this to her and she supplemented with B12 and other Bs and she feels better. Um, is there an area whereby you look at the medication someone takes and you see uh, not just side effects, but possible depletions and other levels that would indicate that they need to take something to supplement the medication? And do you do that? Oh, absolutely. That's As a matter of fact, in complicated cases, one of the first things you do is you go through the medication and see if the symptoms they're complaining about are simply side effects of the medication. And half the time, that is the, the case, that the problem is not more complicated than they're taking six medicines. And, you know, a few of them have the side effects they're complaining about, where they've added all the medicines up and they add up to a side effects that aren't clearly known. Because usually when you look up side effects, it's per medicine, not per group of medicines. And many people are on groups of medicines now. So the metformin one is a good one. You know, of course, the statin drugs, which many people take, they, they uh, deplete a lot of things. One of the biggest selling drugs in the country are PPIs, uh, protein pump inhibitors are used for reflux, and they are, are devastating nutritionally. I spent a lot of time digging people out of trouble from long-term PPI use. Uh, that would be um, uh, Prilosec and, and uh, what is the other? We well, would recon, uh, recognize, Omeprazole is, uh, is another one, and that's the uh, generic name for it. And that interferes with B12, zinc, iron, vitamin D, protein, calcium, magnesium, uh, and they were designed to be used. Yeah, they were designed to be used for eight weeks, and a lot of people use them for years. So yes, a a drug nutrient interactions are a huge thing. Another thing is that people don't realize that over ninety percent of drugs now are generic, and there's a generic drug crisis now because. They're almost all made overseas, and they're monitored very poorly, not for lack of trying on the FDA's part, but for lack of resources 
they have can, they can't even visit all these factories, and a lot of them are in poor areas. Uh, they uh, are uh, there's contaminants that have been found in many of these. A lot of them have sort of fudged records to create drugs. There's an interesting book that just came out about this called Bottle of Lies, which is about the generic industry. And recently, over the last few years, I found several people whose symptoms really were because the generic drugs they were taking just didn't work, or they switched uh, from one generic. Yeah, so from one generic to another generic because you know if you go to Giant or Harris Teeter or Costco wherever you buy your drugs, the first you know January you get them, they might be from India. You know March they might be from China. And then, you know, in April, they might be from another factory in India. They're getting them wherever they're cheapest. And the generic drugs, yeah, well, the generic drugs are supposed to be exactly the same, but they're not exactly the same. They've never been exactly the same. They're kind of close, but they're not monitored. Uh, Unfortunately, right now, they're not monitored well at all. So I've been recently switching a lot of people, having them go back to their doctors and talk to their doctors about brand name medicines. And some of the top... uh, clinics in the country that work with very sensitive people like organ transplant people are only using non-generic medicines now. So, yeah, I was going to ask you, what do you do about that? Do you just have to go to brand names and are there brand names for every drug you need or are there some that you're stuck no, with? It's not, some of them don't, like Prozac, for example, is not made anymore only um, as it's uh, generic form fluconazole. But what you can do is you can go to a, a, a CIPA, a Canadian International Pharmacy Association, which is CIPA.com. And you can get uh, very often name brands for not much more than you're paying for insurance for generic drugs. Um, not always. Some of the newer drugs are still pretty expensive. But I found, now this is not normal, but I haven't found medicines that are 95% cheaper. <laughs> They're brand name medicines. Um, I had a patient call me in a panic. She was recommended to take a medicine that was used to be about 50 bucks. It's an old medicine. And you know, there's been a crisis because the costs are going way up. So with, uh, their insurance was going to charge her $1,000. And, um, and I found it for $50 uh, in Canada at a certified pharmacy. So you can, uh, they also tell you when you do it that way, what country is coming from, uh, and and that's you can have cho- you can have some choices, but I do think this generic drug problem is actually a, a crisis that they had a big recall. I don't know if you saw this of a blood pressure medicine last year, and it had carcinogens in it. Uh, yes, yeah, so and a bunch of uh, and they said don't worry about it. You know, it probably wasn't much, and it was only in animal studies. But these companies uh, they're under a lot of pressure to make uh, money, and they have been consistently cutting corners. So I think that you have to be on, you have to really be much more involved in your care. People say, oh, vitamins aren't regulated. They, they are regulated. There's all kinds of rules, but but there's nobody out there really checking. And the food situation is no different. We really are in a buyer beware economy now. You buy something and it's really up to you to figure out if it's going to be worthwhile. How so. could you, yeah, I mean, it's a problem. How could you figure out if a medicine has stuff in it that would hurt you unless you go to a lab and the food, you know, how do you figure out if there's a, it is, what do they say it is? It has what they say it has. Well, you can't, well, the truth is you can't for everything, but you make some smart choices. And that's why recently I've been um, talking to people who have vague, I have a woman who has some very weird symptoms right now. And um, so she's gone back to her doctor to request a brand name for some of the medicines she's taken. And she's having some very bizarre side effects with, which should not be. 
and um, and see if that straightens it out. And sometimes it will. Then for food, I mean, that's partly I think why farmers markets are taking off is because at least you can talk to the person producing the food. Now, that I suppose they could lie through their teeth, but they generally don't. Uh, you do have only one degree separation. You're not getting it from an unknown agri farm somewhere, possibly you know, another country. And not that other countries aren't growing good food, but people tend to behave as badly as you let them. There's an interesting Netflix series, if you're interested in this, called Rotten, which is about uh, food fraud. And it's pretty much as we become interested in higher quality food, it's pretty much across the board. I mean, there's food fraud with olive oil, with fish, with peanuts, with honey. Uh, so you you want to know your producers as much as you can, and you you probably want to get a little bit more involved with your food than you have been. Is there ways to uh, I don't know to viscerally test? You know, when you have a certain food, uh, there are things that you can look out for that would tell you that the food is not what they say it is. Like, you know, for instance, if you're used to eating a lot of wild caught fish, you can it has a certain taste. You know, that's different from not a wild caught. Or if you don't drink diet soda and you drink diet soda, you can tell, which is a bad example. But um, does that work for a lot of foods? Or you could just tell right away by the taste or it could be masked? No, no, you can't really know. And the problem is, is that most people don't have the time. You can't, you can't search it all down, obviously. That's kind of crazy. I mean, there's some things you can learn here and there. For example, we know that a lot of the um, nut-contaminated Olive oils come from Italy and Greece, and the California ones have been testing the best in terms of not having, uh, they were cutting olive oil with hazelnut oil, which is no big deal really in terms of health, unless you have a nut allergy, then it's pretty bad. And I started finding that kids were reacting to olive oil a number of years ago, which shouldn't happen because olives are very non-reactive. And so it was kind of weird that suddenly kids were having trouble with olive oil. I had no idea why they would. I thought, gosh, I guess they're just getting more allergic but it turned out that it was probably cut with hazelnut oil. And so uh, so, you, so you have to question, I mean, you just learn to question everything. That was outside of my my thinking range. I thought, oh, who, who would have thought that, right? That they would cut olive oil with a nut oil. That sounds kind of crazy. But they do all kinds of stuff like that now. So you just, you just have to be open-minded about it and uh, be suspicious, I guess. Uh, if you don't feel well after you eat something that you've been eating for a while, it's possible there's something in there that shouldn't be. Well, how do you proactively guard yourself, you know, without going crazy? You know, medicine-wise, I don't know if you could recap what you said to guard yourself. Uh, and then food-wise, what are some suggestions? Well, I think like I said, I think um, we're friends with our farmer. <laughs> so we know where some of our food's coming from. So I feel pretty confident that most of the food is pretty good. And of course, for, if you're eating a lot of produce and fruits and vegetables, uh, that pretty much it's hard to fake an apple. And now you can lie about whether it's organic, I suppose. But uh, if you're eating produce, you're probably getting produce. Uh, organic is nice, although there is some fraud in that, like everywhere else. But I like uh, to do organic when possible. If you can afford it, that's always uh, a, a nice thing to do. And um, yeah, and that's pretty much what you have to, like I said, you have to become more involved with your food supply to some extent. And medicines, what, what was the CIPA, the Canadian pharmacy thing you talked about? What, what's the role of that company or that organization? Uh, well, it is, it's, a, it's an international organization that makes sure that uh, the pharmacies that belong to them are following certain rules and are not just fly-by-night operations where you're getting cornstarch and capsules. And so they have maybe 50 pharmacies that carry a wide range of medicines. Not all of them carry every medicine, 
but you can source through them to find the best price and you know the ones that you can buy generic or non-generic and like i said if you're going to go to that trouble you probably want to get brand name and um like i said there's a big list of them so if you're one pharmacy doesn't carry the drug you need you can go to a different one and uh, some of the common drugs all of them carry and so that's how we source out medicines and they they generally are about 50% cheaper like i said i have found them even more uh, discounted. I don't think they're so much discounted as they're more fairly priced. Our medicines are are very much, uh, I don't know, the prices have been exaggerated. We all know about the insulin crisis over the last couple of years where they they just uh, pushed the price of, of that way up and out of the reach of some people, which has been devastating. It's a devastating problem. Yeah, how much has it gone up? I don't know. It's 10 or 20 times. I mean, over the last, it's, it's dramatic. I mean, there's been some reports of young you know, kids in their twenties who are dying because they can't afford. I mean, I actually even see saw one of those medical shows, like those doctory shows on TV, where they had one of those stories because of the cost going up so much. Uh, people are having trouble affording it, and that's not a uh, maybe medicine. That's obviously medicine you just have to be taking. Like I tell you, I use a um, you know an inhaler, and that's gone up every single time I've gotten it. You know, now the inhaler is like over three hundred dollars when years ago it used to be like fifty bucks. So, yeah, so, it is. Well, good. and we, we have we have some, have some real drug um, uh, issues. But, you know, my job is to try to get people to minimize drugs whenever possible. And and a lot of conditions, like I said, are amenable. Uh, one of the things that, for example, you've probably noticed that allergies are going up a lot with global climate change. Uh, the allergies and pollens are increasing dramatically as the plants are changing and adapting and the, and the bacteria is changing and adapting to temperature changes. And um, one of the most interesting research projects came out in a long time. They took a bunch of mice that were sterile. So they had none, no bacteria on them. Like, you know, you and I have 100 trillion bacteria in our body. And these mice had, had were sterile and didn't have any. And what they did was they took some babies that had allergies and they inoculated these mice with the bacteria from babies that had allergies. And all of the mice developed allergies. And then they took another set of mice and they inoculated them with bacteria from babies that didn't have allergies and none of them got allergies. So they thought there must be a difference here. And they were actually able to identify a bacteria family called Clostridia um, that was very low in people that tended to get allergies. So they're hoping, and this is how kind of research right now works, is that it's always sort of geared towards of a product at the other end, but they're hoping to find some bacteria that one day they'll be able to give people who have allergies and they won't have um, as many allergies anymore. Now, I think that's sort of a pipe dream. I think that what we need to do is get more diversity with our bacteria because kids born in this generation have half the bacteria in their body compared to previous generations. And that's because of a lot of dietary and uh, cultural and climate changes. So we need to get that good bacteria back, it seems to be very protective against allergies. Hmm. Um, so in your detective work, are you asking for people to get certain labs done or sequence their microbiome or do DNA testing? I mean, what kind of things do people need to do if they don't have that info on hand? Well, uh, most people who see me have seen four or five people before, so they have enough to start with. But occasionally they don't, or they have a symptom that hasn't been addressed. And we'll, we're, there's stool tests you can do. There's blood tests. I try to send them back to their physicians to do that because there's much uh, more 
likelihood that they'll get insurance coverage by doing that. Uh, but yes, um, I, the tests I don't do a whole lot of is genetic testing, although I will send people to certain doctors for that. But there's been a lot of genetic testing in the nutrition field over the last couple of years, and it's not quite ready for clinical use. I mean, some of it's okay. Um, I, I really like the gene detox um, testing where you can test the way that your genes regulate your detoxification pathways. And that's very useful when people have bad side effects from medication, because it usually means they don't know how, or they're not able to more specifically break down uh, the medication through their liver. And that's usually genetic. And so you can avoid uh, terrible side effects sometimes by doing uh, that test. That's pretty well developed. It's been around for quite a while now. But some of the newer tests are just we know just little pieces of these pathways, and we the, the devil seems to be in what we don't know uh, with that. But that's coming around, and that's changing very radically. Are there any common conditions you've had uh, a lot of success with, like, let's say, in women, you know, chronic fatigue, where they're just tired all the time, that kind of thing? Well, I, we see a lot of chronic fatigue. Uh, that's definitely one that goes into the complicated um, situation that you have to manage. What you're seeing a lot right now in women is PCOS, which is polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a form, it's much more common now than it used to be. They say up to 10% of women may have it. And it is a condition, uh, it's a form of almost diabetes that plays out in hormone imbalances. So when people have it, their blood sugars are off and then their hormones um, take a, a powder. And so they end up having a lot of PMS, they can have fertility problems, uh, they uh, have a lot of mood issues. They sometimes rapidly gain weight, have acne, their hair can be falling out. I just saw a young woman um, with those uh, problems actually last week where her hair is falling out and uh, her skin is, she has some acne and uh, her periods are a mess. And uh, it is indeed polycystic ovary syndrome. And, and that's very much a dietary related condition. You have to control it the way you control diabetes. So yes, um, and there's, you know, of course there's, the baby boomers are hitting menopause, or many of them have already hit menopause. And so we see a lot of postmenopausal issues. And, and women weren't included in medical studies broadly until just 20 or so years ago. And so we don't know a lot about what healthy aging looks like. And so I deal a lot about what healthy aging looks like. You don't want to always be digging people out of crisis. You want to also be preventing uh, mental issues. We, like we know, for example, that 50% of People by age 80 will have some significant or notable cognitive issues. And so if you want to, to prevent that, which I hope you, you would, you want to start thinking about that when you're 50 or 40, uh, not when you're 80 and having symptoms. And so, yeah, there's, there's many things you, you can do. And, and I think the real good news is that you have a lot more control over this than you think. You certainly don't have complete control because we all live together in a polluted environment that has certain issues that we we share. We obviously can't be healthy if the rest of the world is is not healthy and, and polluted. But you can make choices within what you can eat uh, and uh, exercise and, and sleep. And there are some things that you do have control over, and they seem to tip, um, I would say, a small majority of health issues. So that's the very good news. So what, um, again, we come back to that question, I guess the biggest modulator of most health conditions appears to be diet. And then I guess another level is uh, the medications you're taking and checking those. 
Um, and exercise, well, exercise is also, I call exercise vitamin M for movement. But in a lot of studies, especially for cognition and with older people, they find exercise is actually more critical than anything. You have to keep moving. So I would say, uh, yeah, and, and a lot of people take medication. So if you're looking for three things to do, it would be exercise, you know, eat a, a low inflammation kind of Mediterranean diet, which is a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and, and not so much, you know, fried foods, sugar and um, heavy meat. And uh, so, and so you would try to sleep well and get some exercise and eat well. And those are the, the kind of three things you can do something about, or at least try to sleep long enough. That is true. <clears throat> uh, very boring, but very nuance? helpful. <laughs> so. yeah, I don't know. That's fine. Any other interesting nuance you've seen, um, you know, the people that you work with? Um, well, I think that most people plan to eat better than they actually eat. So if you're really serious about changing your diet, you probably have to do some planning about it because people mean to eat well, but then life interferes. You know, the, the meeting went over. You have to pick up the kids whatever it is. So when people hand me a record of what they've been eating, they, they often say, oh, this isn't normal because it's not what they intend to eat. And so I think we have to close that gap between our intentions and what we're actually doing. Uh, it's, it takes planning in our busy lives to eat healthy. It doesn't just happen. <laughs> you just have to, you have to make some adjustments and you can still eat out and and uh which most of us do uh, more than we used to uh, there's a lot more healthy choices there's a lot of places you can eat now that have decent choice you can go to some of these salad places like sweet greens and and uh um that you, you can just really eat quite well out but you have to plan it if that's not on, on your way home then you have to find some place that might be so you don't end up stopping at a fast food joint and we know that yeah. that a diet based on those kind of fats, especially <clears throat> that are found in these uh, fast food establishments where they're fried foods, where they're, they're packages of some sort, are, are highly associated with, with small brain volume. And in animals that eat, when animals eat like that, they have the initial tangles of Alzheimer's disease uh, just from eating kind of bad fats because your brain is mostly fat. And so you incorporate your fats into your brain. And if you have these shelf-stable fats, you have a brain that doesn't remain as flexible and doesn't send signals in the same way. So by eating these kind of bad fats and these packaged foods, these fried foods over a long period of time, uh, you're doing an uncontrolled experiment with your brain. And so that would be a, a big takeaway is, you know, watch your fats. Your brain's mostly fat. That's why they call people fatheads. Yeah. I guess you don't want a shelf-stable brain. You don't want a shelf-stable brain. That's right. You want one that can send signals properly. And the kind of fats you use literally incorporate into your brain the way a brick incorporates into a wall. And it changes the way you send signals. Um, you know that function follows structure. And so, and we know in animal studies where they sacrifice animals and look at their brains, the kind of fats really dramatically change the kind of brains they form. So it's uh, really important the kind of fats you eat. And many of us are doing a lot of snacking with these shelf-stable fats, and they, over time, change the structure of your brain. So that might be a takeaway for people. You want to look at your diet, you look at the kind of fats you're eating. Uh, that uh, can make a big difference. One meta-analysis with 185 studies found that when people took fish oil, uh, I mean, looking over all these studies as a, a whole, they uh, found that, that there was some amelioration 
of a junk food diet, that taking fish oil took some of the sting out of some of the bad eating. Now, of course, it's still better to eat, you know, health foods and everything, but fish oil uh, provided some benefit as a protective agent. But, uh, what's your opinion of <clears throat> diets that people are on, you know, the keto, keto diet, um, being a vegan, you know, other diets out there that are popular right now? Well, I, th- I think the best diet is pretty quiet and boring. It's mixed up with, I mean, I'm not against people eating meat. I hope that we would raise it more humanely. Uh, but there's, um, you know, the chicken and uh, fish and uh, mostly you want to have plant-based foods uh, like uh, vegetables and fruits and whole grains and nuts and seeds. You want to use that as a base uh, and then add perhaps some goat cheese or some uh, low-fat dairy, uh, some fish and chicken um, on top of that and uh, lower the, the processed food aspect, the white food, if you will, aspect. And that's kind of the best diet. Some version of the Mediterranean diet just consistently has been found in depression studies and in, um, uh, like there was this, what was that study called? Smile was the depression study where they found a diet like that helped about a third of people with major depression. It's, uh, so that basic diet comes up the best when uh, across the board for anti-inflammation. All these other diets kind of come and go, but they, they have issues that you have to look at. Ketogenic is a very um, interesting diet. It can be very useful for short periods, but it's very hard to stay on for long periods. People tend to get depressed on it because there's not enough carbs. So you have to adjust it for a 30-day cleansing diet or maybe 60 days for somebody who has a lot of weight to lose. It would be great, but it's not a long-term diet uh, without modification. Uh, the vegan diet is very popular right now, but most vegans I see are junk food uh, vegans, and so they're actually in worse shape than they're not doing it for health at all because they end up eating a lot of empty starch and uh, not enough protein. Uh, you have to, if you want to be vegan, you have to like legumes and you have to eat at least one or two times a day some kind of legume type food. And most uh, vegans aren't doing that. They're eating, you know, pizzas with without cheese on it, so it's just bread and and sauce, you know, type thing, and and uh, not eating really enough of these other kinds of of uh, protein foods that are concentrated in nutrients. So, like I said, these other kind of more fringy diets, they, they can be good, but they often need modifications. Uh, pe- vegans in this country have to take vitamin D and B12 also, uh, or else they run into to trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recently... Hey, I've seen her. I've seen her. Hey, oh, droopy, unhappy looking. It's a tough diet. You have to have a really strong metabolism to handle it well. You have to be able to digest very well because the vegan foods aren't as quite as concentrated in nutrients as meat is. Because if you're a cow, you know, one pound of flesh is going to be from eight to 10 pounds possibly of eating some kind of grain. So you're going to really concentrate those nutrients. So I mean, there's pros and cons, of course, to meat eating, just that there's pros and cons to being a, ve- a vegan. But to be strictly vegan, you have to be able to get those nutrients out of the food. And people who do very poorly as vegans have weak digestive systems or are not eating a broad enough uh, diet. Uh, there's there, there's a fair amount of preparation uh, to the vegan diet to do it correctly. So, yeah. So, like I said, um, my, my feeling about diets is that the best diet is a pretty boring one, but uh, pretty straightforward. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles on it. Most of the diets that are out there is uh, the anti-inflammation diets is some version of the, of the Mediterranean diet, the MIND diet, which is the, the diet that's 
based on research that helps brain function. Uh, that one is is basically a Mediterranean diet with some bells and whistles on it. Um, I mean, most of the ones are bells and whistle enhanced Mediterranean diets. Okay. So, that work. So, in closing, um, what's the best what's way for people to get in touch with you? They want to do a consult or have questions, and what are some resources you could recommend for people? Thanks, Richard. Well, uh, they can always email me uh, at office at kellydorfman.com. And Kelly is K-E-L-L-Y and Dorfman is D-O-R-F as in fire, M-A-N. They can check out my book if they have kids. It's called Cure Your Your Child with Food, uh, Workman 2013. And it's written like detective stories and tells you how to unravel some of these situations. A lot of adults told me they were able to unravel their own situations uh, even though it was a book that was written geared towards kids, so perhaps maybe not ear infections if you're an adult, but uh, there's a lot of of uh, chapters about mood and uh, tummy aches and uh, and other things like that. Uh, and those are, I think, the two main resources that I have available. Well, very good. Very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, it sounds pretty simple, the you know the things you've talked about, but uh, yet there's a lot of nuance and difficulties. So uh, I appreciate you being here. Oh, no. I mean, nutrition is a, a very, very interesting field, and uh, I think it's finally starting to get its due. So thanks for asking me, Richard, and have a wonderful afternoon. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.